0: If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and find your way to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 5 through 7 today. So we are starting a new series as we'll walk through the next three weeks together, as we walk through the month of December and celebrate Christmas, that uh, really kind of goes to a a different level than what we would maybe normally do. We're we're not going to turn to Luke chapter 2 or to Matthew chapter 1. We're not going to be looking at the kind of the traditional Christmas stories because I, let me give you some context of what, what I believe God wants to fo- us to focus in on for this month. So going back about three weeks ago, I was sitting in a church council meeting with our council, a great group of leaders that helped to govern our church. And uh, as we do every council meeting, we were coming to Enclose, an and we spent an extended time of praying for our church and for the city that we live in and what God's up to. And so as we, we kind of shared what's going on and we went to pray, it was the I've, it, strangest thing, I, I've rarely experienced this, but I closed my eyes, and as I closed my eyes, I felt this enormous burden, almost physical, but not really, but just this burden come over me. And it wasn't like a bad burden. It was this amazing burden that as we're praying, God's like give me, giving me this picture and this weight of his profound love for our church and for our city. Now, I know that God loves us, and I know that God loves people. And I know that God loves Simi Valley. I mean, I've grown up in the church, and I know John three sixteen, and I've talked about love, and I've studied love. But this was different. This was, this was a weight that I was feeling that I hadn't experienced before. And if you know me, I don't cry very easily. I just don't. My, my wife and my kids will tell you that. But in the midst of this prayer time, I start crying. Now, I'm look, I open my eyes just so you, I'm being totally transparent out of my own pride. I'm like, I don't want them to see me cry. I'm like, oh, good. Everybody's eyes are closed. Some of them are down on their face before God. Good. I can cover myself. And so I'm thinking, get your, get your act together. What's wrong with you? And so I, I'm just feeling this weight, and I'm praying, and I'm sobbing, and so finally I know I'm, I'm going to need to pray, and so I finally kind of gather myself, and I pray, and I'm wiping my face, and then when we say amen, everybody looks up, and I think, okay, I covered myself. They're not going to know what's going on, and as far as I know, none of the council members knew what was going on. So I, we finish the meeting. I get in my car, and I start driving, and I get out on LA Avenue headed towards my house, and I lose it, and I start sobbing again, and I start crying, and and, and and what I'm, what I'm feeling is I'm driving down L.A. Avenue. I'm looking at people on the street. I'm seeing cars drive by. There's this, this overwhelming sense that Jesus is saying to me, and I'm feeling at the same time, do they really know? Do they really know how much I love them? Does the church really know how much I love them? Now, let me explain what, I'm, what I was feeling here. It's this strange dynamic. We always use the cliche of God loves you, and we can joke about that, and we've heard it a million times, but Jesus is saying, do they even know the profound love I have for them and what I went through and continue to go through for them today so that they will know that I love them? And so as I'm seeing people like cross in front of me in a crosswalk, I'm like sobbing looking at them, hoping they're not looking in the car at me, but seeing their face and and Jesus saying, do they even know? Do they really know how much I actually love them? And so as I, as I started to think about that, and I got home, and, and it was just thinking about the month of December, and as we came into this, I felt like, okay, what we need to be doing in this month is not just talking about the typical kind of, we can read the narrative of Luke and Matthew, which are great stories, but what did it actually mean for Jesus? What did Jesus actually have to go through to become human? Because we know that he became human, but what does it actually mean for him to become human? The God of the universe who's present for all time, who is at creation to become one of his creation. What does that actually mean? What does he go through? What did he experience because of his profound love for us? Now, what I'm going to ask you to do today in the next three weeks together is that the messages are going to cause you, are going to require of you to reflect more than to apply what I mean by that is so many times you're like, okay, give me the five steps that'll go change my life. I'll go live it out this week and check it off my box. Sometimes that's what we can do. This isn't that kind of series or that kind of message. This is letting, it's sitting in the midst of what God is saying about how profound his love is. And for some of that's important. And this is not a weight that comes with guilt, shame, and condemnation. This is a weight that comes with, wow, a sense of awe that God loves me that much that Jesus would go through that for me. He would go that through that for our city, for the people around me, and then with a the question for ourselves, do I even really know how much he loves me? Do I even really know how much he loves our city, how much he loves my neighbors, how much he loves my coworkers? How, do, I, do they really know his deep love? So I have us in Philippians chapter 2 this morning because this is a pretty famous passage uh, historically in the church about what Jesus experienced to become human. So let me read these three verses and we'll talk about them together. So remember, if you recall back last week when we were talking about uh, the Bible, we talked about the book of Philippians. So Paul's writing to a group of people he has a very deep connection with, very deep love for. And in this passage, he's talking about unity and how they should work with each other and how they should love each other. And so he then uses Jesus as the example of what it looks like to be selfless. And so he says this in verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Then verse six and seven, this is where we're really going to focus. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now what we're going to do today is just dive into those two verses. Those verses that will speak volumes to us about what Jesus walked through and experienced because of his profound love for us. So look at verse 6. The first thing that we have to draw our attention to, there's four things I want to start with of why did Jesus, what did he experience in order to become human? The first part of verse 6 tells us that he was experiencing this reality of becoming fully man while remaining fully God. Now, some of you are thinking, I didn't have enough coffee this morning, I didn't sleep enough last night to capture these concepts. These are big concepts, but just let them settle in. Okay, let them settle in. Two words in particular in that first part of that verse that are so important of what Paul's trying to communicate. The reality that Jesus was never just man or just God when he was on the earth. He's always fully God and fully man at the same time. Now, we struggle with that because we are always in this kind of, we don't like both and. We like either or. We don't like gray. We like black and white. Jesus had black and white at the same time. He was fully God and fully man. Now, listen, there's a couple words. There's a word in, now, I'm reading from what's called English, uh, English. the esv english standard version some of you might have niv but there's two words in esv that stand out the first one is the word was which is the idea of being which what paul uses this word is very very specific word it was used to describe being some the the part of who you are and the being that you are it's something that is part of who you are as an individual that doesn't change doesn't change according to times or seasons or circumstances in your life the essence of who you are always stays the same So he's saying the being of who Jesus was, being the same. And then he uses the word form. He was in the form of God. It wasn't like he was like God. He was the form of God. He was God. And the word form is really important, too, because it's the word morphe. And in Greek, there's two words that are used to describe form. One is a word that describes form that changes over time. And then there's another word, morphe, which is what doesn't change over time or season. The outward may change, but the inward. So, for example, the essence of who you are doesn't change over time, but our bodies change, don't they? We grow, we get bigger, we shrink over time, we get older, right? But the essence of who we are is the same. It's the same thing for what what Paul is describing here, is that the essence of who Jesus is in being God didn't go away when he became human. He became both at the same time. Now, for some of us, are like, okay, I get that. I know, Jesus is fully God and fully man. I've been in the church, and I get that. But I want us just to just think about what that meant for Jesus. I know I, I don't know. We can't get into the mind of Jesus. We can't read his mind 2,000 years ago when he walked the planet. But can you just imagine for a moment, if you're these two realities, you are fully God and you are fully man, all at the same time means that You are limitless because you're God, while at the same time being completely limited. Just think about that. At the same time, it isn't like, okay, I step into my limitlessness of God, and then I step into my limitedness of humanity. That wasn't the way it was. It was both at the same time. That means he's also fully invincible because he's God, and he's all-powerful, and he's all-knowing, and yet, at the same time, he's completely susceptible because he's a human being. He's completely powerful because he's God, at the same time he's weak because he's human. I mean, just thinking about these, it's crazy. He, at the same time, is the author while being the subject. This is, I know you're like, that's a big concept, but understand this. Jesus lived in this, and we'll talk about what that might have felt like. But just to think about that, all at once, in who he is, he is both fully God and fully man at the same time when he walked the planet. And because of that, there's a different reality that he has to experience internally that we can't fully understand, but we can know, Guy, can you imagine what that would be like? And, this, and think about this, if he was like this because he chose this. And we'll talk, you have to follow along, the progression will begin to make a little bit more sense, be a little more clear. Second thing, go on to verse 6. Jesus also experienced, in order to become human, relinquishing his privileges as God. He did not relinquish his identity as God, but he relinquished his privileges. Listen to what it says in the rest of verse 6. Talking about Jesus. did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The fact that he was God was not something that he hung on to and said, I'm God, and because I'm God, I deserve these privileges. I deserve to have all these abilities. But he didn't consider that something to hang on to because he realized to hang on to that means that he couldn't become fully human. But he, did not, he didn't become not God at the same time. So let me explain this. See, when we think about When somebody reaches the pinnacle of their career, or they become the best at anything, and with that comes fame and money and and notoriety, and we we think about that they get rewarded for how well they achieve in life. So let's say you get a promotion at work, and you become the best in your department or the category of work that you do, and you get a bonus. And that bonus comes along in your mind and everybody else around you because they see that you're the best. They think, you deserve this you deserve what the privileges of being the best. So so like in our culture what what do we value? Crazy. We value believe it or not, we value fame and we value sports. Who are the highest paid people in our country right now? Athletes. And so when they reach a certain level of expertise in their field and they get millions and millions of dollars, most people don't say they don't deserve it. Most people think, I wish I could be like them and I could have all that money. But what? They, they think that, well, you have the fame and the fortune, so you can drive the nice car, you can live in the big house, you can have the security, you can travel, you can have all the way because you've earned the privileges of your success. Now apply that to Jesus. Jesus is God. There's nobody more successful, nobody better, nobody more perfect, nobody as powerful as him. He has earned the right to have everything at his disposal because he's God, and yet it says here, Paul says, those privileges, he didn't hang on to those. He didn't demand those from, for himself. In fact, there's a very vivid verse that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, that it describes this kind of thing that Jesus went through. He says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, being in heaven, being God, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That he took his privileges as God and says, "I'm not, I'm not going to use them for myself. I'm not going to use my wealth and my riches and my position for who I want to be and how I want to demonstrate that. I'm not going to use. I'm going to use those for the benefit of other people." We don't have a concept for that, a, like a legit concept, like that somebody who like has all the money in the world in a moment gives all of it away so they can become poor and relate to people who are poor. We don't have that. Now we have elements of that, but we don't have that to that level. I've, I've shared about my friend uh, Ed Stanton, who's a pastor up in Oregon, and he wanted to fully experience what it meant to be homeless and and see eye to eye with someone living on the street in Portland. So. One day, he had his son drop him off in downtown Portland with nothing but the clothes on his back. No wallet, no watch, no phone, nothing. No credit cards, no nothing. And he's just going to survive for 24 hours. And he told his son, I will meet you at this corner tomorrow at this time. And then he tried to navigate homelessness for 24 hours in Portland in the middle of the winter. He did what a lot of homeless people did. He ended up in Powell Books, which is a famous bookstore in Portland because it was warm. And he sat there and he said, I never had this perspective before. He goes, but I watched people as they were eating their muffin or their banana and hoping that they wouldn't finish it and they would leave it on the table. And he said, I watched one guy and I was so glad when he took the last bite and he put it down and he got up and he left. He goes, I ran over to the table and I grabbed that half-eaten muffin and that's what I ate. He said, then when I got to nighttime." He said, it was crazy. He said, I was trying to find some place warm, and he had to go one place to another, and he found this perfect place, which was on this loading dock behind this business that was kind of sheltered, and he laid down only to get knocked by some guy and said, what are you doing in my spot? And he pushed him out of the way. He said, this is where I sleep. Go find your own. So he spent most of the night just wandering around. So he's cold. He said he started to lose feeling in his hands and his feet because it was so cold. And he was hungry. And he had nowhere to turn. And finally, he was glad that the next day at least his son was going to pick him up. But he said he walked away from that. And he said, I looked eye to eye with homeless people. This is the reality that they live in every single day. Now, think about it on a much grander scale. Jesus did once and for all became fully human. By the way, Jesus did not cease to be human after he rose from the dead. He still has a resurrected body like we will have, and we'll talk about that in a few weeks. He didn't check in and out of humanity like, okay, 33 years, I'm human, boom, I'm out. No, he experiences the full reality of that while being fully God at the same time. So to understand that, there's a, then there's a third thing. Jesus' experienced becoming human This is, now this one can, you have to kind of stay with me on this one. Are you there? Okay, yes, say yes if you're still there. Okay, thank you. The third thing is that he became human by subtracting, uh, excuse me, subtracting by adding to himself. Now this sounds totally backwards. How do you subtract by addition? If you're God, that's the way math works, okay? Listen to the last part, the first part of verse seven. By empty, or uh, but emptied himself, talking of Jesus, by taking the form of a servant. So two words, emptied and taking, two really key words. Emptied means literally to pour out everything until there's nothing left. So people would look at this and say, wait a second. So if Jesus was God, he didn't consider that something to be grasped, so he let it go and he emptied himself and he poured himself out completely, then he ceased to be God. But that's not what he did. Because the second part, the taking, the word taking, is what is used to describe when someone takes a piece of clothing and puts it on themselves, taking on something. So, what Paul is clearly writing, and Paul's doing this on purpose, he's saying, Listen, Jesus emptied himself of his privileges of being God, not by emptying himself of being God, but by adding something to himself, by putting on this thing called humanity. And this is the picture that we have of Jesus Jesus is fully God, but Jesus is fully God clothed in human flesh. And there's a million reasons why he did it, and there's some that we will not understand, but I know there's one for sure the reason he did that. Obviously, there's a number of them because he had to fully live the human experience to die on behalf of us for our sin and rise from the dead as a human being who is fully man and fully God. But think about this. The God of the universe comes down to visit his creation. He can't come in all of his glory. There's only a few people that have ever seen God face to face. Two of them are Adam and Eve, and that happened before the fall. But after the fall, because sin entered the equation, God doesn't come down in the fullness of his glory and show himself. Why? Because we can't handle it. We can't. So he what? He clothes himself in human flesh for our benefit so that we can see eye to eye with the God of the universe without being absolutely destroyed in the moment. He clothes himself, he puts that on. And so in a sense, he's not, be, he's not ceasing to be God, but he is becoming human by clothing himself with human flesh. Why would he do that? So that he could experience the fullness of what it means to be human and he could look at us eye to eye. He knows, and we'll talk about this next week, because we're going to talk about his life and his death and the resurrection, but he knows what it is to be human fully. He knows what it is to experience humanity. And because of that, he became like us so he could see eye to eye with us. He limited himself for our benefit. This is huge. Because if he didn't limit us, he couldn't see eye to eye to us. He couldn't be one of us. So when, when Jordan was younger, and I, I was coaching all of his basketball teams as he was growing up, um, one of the things that I would do, I loved doing, I loved to actually scrimmage with the boys, actually play in a game with them. But, but obviously, when I was, you know, 30 years old, and you've got, third grade boys, my basketball talent is just a little bit better than theirs. I hope so. But, but I wanted them to learn things. And so when we would scrimmage, I would play, but I would intentionally make sure that I didn't play to my fullest capacity as a 30-year-old man playing basketball. Because that wouldn't be fair. But there was something inside of me that thought, this would be really cool if I went all out right now. They would never score. They would never get the ball. Whatever team I was on, I could take, I could go one on 12 and I could beat all of them. But then at, the end, at the end of practice, what would they learn? They would learn that their coach is some pompous, arrogant jerk who likes to, to fulfill his, himself in, in schooling third-grade boys on the basketball court. That wouldn't prove anything. But if I lowered myself, and so I wouldn't run, I wouldn't jump, I wouldn't go underneath the basket, I wouldn't shoot. I would just do simple things on the court that would be the equivalent of what they could do so I could be in there in the mix with them, and I could teach them, and they could learn. I did that in third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, until Jordan probably got to about eighth grade. Then finally, the kids he was playing in eighth grade, they were my level. Some of them were taller than me. I didn't limit myself at all when we were playing eighth grade. I'm like, I got to keep up with you guys. But I limited myself on purpose. Why? Because although I had the ability to be better than them, I wasn't going to demonstrate that on the court because it didn't serve their purpose. And Jesus is the same way. Him coming down and saying, okay, I got the privileges of God, and I'm going to show you what it looks like to be God. I'm going to demonstrate so you know. That wouldn't benefit us. That would be using his own privileges for his own benefit because he has some pride or ego trip that he's on, and that's not Jesus. That's not God's love for us. So he puts on, he clothes himself with humanity so that he can be with us, yet be fully God and fully man at the same time. And then the fourth part of this understanding of how he became human, what he experiences, experiencing the fullness of being human. It says, being born in the likeness of men. Being born, literally, so Jesus experienced everything it is to be human. Now, when he came, he came into existence as in humanity, when he was born or through his conception, he was always God. But that means he fully experienced everything that you and I experienced. He fully embraced it. He didn't like so suddenly show up at age 30 and like, ta-da, I'm here, and skip all of the process of humanity of being birthed and being raised and, and having brothers and sisters and struggling with being physically ill, if having a cold. Jesus knew what it is to be human, what it is to be hungry, what it is to be rejected, all of those things. He fully understood all of that. Because he fully brought on himself the full capacity of what it means to be human. And this is so important, and we'll, we'll talk about that in, in a little bit more, but just think about this. Why is that so important? Because how many times you and I just write off when we read the Gospels, ah, Jesus was God. That's why he did that. I could never see that happen in my life. Did you know that anything that Jesus ever did that's recorded in the Gospels wasn't done out of his divinity, it was done out of his humanity, filled by the Holy Spirit? It's clear throughout the Scriptures. He wasn't demonstrating what it was like if you could be a, a God who's human. He was demonstrating what it's like to be fully human when God is at the core of who you are, when you understand your identity, when you're a follower of Jesus. That's what, Jesus lived the perfect life and said, you can do this too. That's why he told his disciples. They're watching him do miracles. They're watching all this amazing teaching. They're watching this power. And he says to them, you're gonna do greater things than this. They're like, what? He goes, I'm demonstrating what it means to be human. Human. And if we understand that, that means Jesus understands everything. And so when we say, ah, pff, that can't happen because Jesus was God and you know, he, can't, he walked on water because he was God. No, he walked on water because the power of the Holy Spirit lived inside of him and he relied on the Father for, for the Father to fulfill his purpose through him. We can do the same thing today. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit that lives inside of us so we can experience that. So he experienced the fullness of humanity. And I think what goes even deeper is that, have you ever experienced that bond with somebody because you have something in common with them? You know, maybe, I know for me, there's times when I'll meet somebody who I didn't realize that I grew up, like, at the same school with them, and we'll start talking. Like, oh, you had that teacher? You played for that basketball coach? You grew up here? You went to that? And you're like, suddenly you get closer and you draw closer, and why you have this bond? Why? Because you have something in common. You and I have the, 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 one of the, the most primary identities that we have as being human. We have that in common with the God of the universe and Jesus. We have that bond. He has that bond with us. He knows what it's like to wake up in the morning and not want to get out of bed because you're tired or you're sick or you're in pain. He knows that. He knows what it's like to be in relationship with people that you love and they hurt you. He knows what it's like to pour yourself into lives of other people and not see what you would think is any fruit or to see somebody reject you even though you've reached out to them. He knows all of that. And we'll talk more about that next week. But how do we what do we what do we settle in on? There's four things we want to close with this because this contributes to how we understand God's love for us. If these things are true and this is the experience that Jesus had on our behalf, then then how does that speak to the depth of God's love for us in Jesus? Four things. How much does Jesus actually love us? He loves us enough the first thing to live in tension. Now this is, we're, we're going to try to attempt to jump inside of the experience of Jesus. Okay, this is hard to do, but we can verify this one with him when we see him face to face someday. And this is a pretty well-educated guess. I can't go chapter and verse from scripture, but I can tell this is probably what was going on inside of him. Remember, at every moment of Jesus' existence on the earth, fully God, fully man. He didn't check in and out of either, he's fully both. Can you imagine the tension he lived in constantly? the tension between what was unfolding in front of him and the capacity within him. He clothed himself. He's revealing the kingdom of God to people. People are getting healed and power's going on. But can you just imagine those moments where he can, knows he can change everything in a moment? And this is the key, because he's living in this tension, but he knows if he changes everything in a moment, he's going to do it for his own benefit. How do we know this? Matthew chapter four, Jesus is tempted by the devil. The devil comes to him. This is what's crazy. So Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. If you read Matthew 4, first couple of verses, and it says, and he was hungry, which is a slight understatement, okay? If you haven't eaten for 40 days, you're slightly hungry. And so when the enemy comes to him, the enemy knew who he was. So the enemy comes to him, and in and, and one of the temptations, he points to a stone, and he says, turn it into bread. He goes, you can satisfy your hunger right now. Just tr- take the stone and turn it into bread. Can you uh, just, just picture for me? Can you imagine? You are the God of the universe. You are the creator of all things. You think that's just a puny stone. I can snap my finger and that'll turn into a loaf of bread. It'll turn into a 10-course meal if I want it to. And he's staring at the enemy. And inside of him there has to be this tension of what he knows he can do, but he's chosen not to do. Because in that moment, if he turned the stone into bread, he would be doing it for his own benefit. He'd be using his privilege for himself to prove a point to the enemy out of self pride that would be so counterintuitive to who Jesus is. And he lived in that all the time. Can you imagine the conversations he had with the Pharisees when they come to him and they try to school him on the law? He's the author. And they're trying to tell him he doesn't know what he's talking about and that he's crazy and he doesn't make sense. Can you imagine the intellect that Jesus possesses as the God of the universe that he could have, in a moment, he could have wiped them out. But he holds back. Every single moment of his life, he's at that moment. When he's in the garden of Gethsemane and he knows. That's why the enemy early on in that temptation, the enemy offers him all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus knows, I don't get this because you give it to me and and me bowing to you. I get this because I suffer and die for the sins of the world. That's how I get the kingdoms of the world. Can you imagine when he's in the garden of Gethsemane and he says to the Father, if there's any other way, he could say, forget it, I'm not doing this. Or when he's on the cross, or when he's on his way to the cross and he's being ridiculed and spit on and beaten and rejected, in one moment he said, enough! And he could have revealed himself fully as God and wiped out every person around him. Can you imagine the tension he walked in every day of his life? But he limited himself because he loves us. And he knew that he had to go fully through to the cross and to the resurrection for God's purpose to be accomplished, that we would be reconciled back to God because our sin and brokenness would be once and for all paid for and death would be dealt with so we never have to fear it. He knew that was the way he had to go, so he limited Himself. Second thing. We know that Jesus loves us, and how much does He love us? He loves us enough to step out of heaven. You know, we've been singing a song, and we'll conclude our service with it. Song by uh, Hillsong Music, and it's the song "What a Beautiful Name." And I love. There's a line in there. It says, "You didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down." Think about this. You didn't. You didn't want heaven without us so you didn't you didn't say hey okay you're coming up here no I'm gonna come there I'm gonna come and, and be with you I want you to think about this because what Jesus is saying to us is that I know you can't be good enough to get to where I am so I'm gonna come down and look you eye to eye and that means the reality for us to understand is that Jesus doesn't need us I want you to hear that it's, It sounds funny Jesus doesn't need any of us Jesus doesn't need anything he doesn't need anyone why he's God but you know what's crazy? He wants us. He doesn't need us, but He wants us. He deeply desires to be in relationship with us. And so, what do you do for a God who doesn't need anything, but yet He chooses to want those that He's created? That, that places the highest value. Why? Because God doesn't need us as a means to His end. Does that make sense? If you need something or someone, you need them for a purpose, for your own justification. But God wants us. He desires us. And yes, does that bring glory to God? Absolutely it does. But God can bring glory to himself. But he chose chooses what? To want us. When I was in early middle school, I was up at a retreat with uh, Life Pacific College, which is when my dad was a professor. So I before I attended there, I grew up there literally because I was at all kind of retreats and events. And so I got to know some of the the students at the time, and, and one of them became a really good friend of mine. He, he was a great leader, ended up becoming the ASB president, and became a pastor, and so we got to know each other. So he was like, I think he was about 25, mid-20s, and I was, you know, like 12 or 13, and we got to know each other. And he would come over to my house, and we'd play sports together, and so I went to the retreat, and uh, during one of the sessions, I skipped out because I could because I wasn't part of the school, and so I was out playing basketball myself, shooting around, and And when free time came, in my mind, I thought it would be great to be able to play basketball, but I know all the college guys are going to come out, and there's no way I can compete. And so when they kind of broke for lunch, and then everybody kind of went out to the basketball court, I went out there, and I'm shooting around, and and so they start to pick teams, and and Russ, who's my friend, is one of the captains, another guy's another captain, so they start picking, and in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm just literally slowly stepping back off the court, because it's like, okay, you guys play, I'll watch. And so they each make their first pick, and I kind of knew the talent pool, because I like basketball, and I'm watching, I'm like, that's a good pick. That guy's good, you know. He's taller, he's faster, he can shoot. And then Russ comes to his second pick, and I'm like standing way back, and he points, he goes, John, I'll take you. And I'm like, like, really? That's a joke. He's like, no, no, you're on my team. I'm like, seriously, I can play? He goes, yeah. And of course, everybody's looking, I'm like, what in the world is he thinking, picking the 12-year-old, 13-year-old kid? And so I get on the team, and of course, they had to compensate for me the whole game. I mean, I can't run as fast, I can't jump as high, and any guy I guard, he's going to be better than me. But I remember from that moment on, I had the, the most profound sense of value. They didn't need me on their team. They needed somebody else, taller, faster, older, stronger. But Russ wanted me on his team because he valued me. And if you think about it, God doesn't need you on his team. He wants you on his team. He wants you in his family. He chooses you. Not because, oh, you're bigger and better and stronger and more spiritual or more pure than anybody else. No, he looks at you and says, I love you and that's my choice and I want you. And if we let that settle in, if we sit in that, can just imagine, that's why he came out of heaven to earth because he said, I want to be with you. Emmanuel, God with us. That's God's value for us. And then there's, A third reason for Jesus' love and how much He loves us, and that is He loved us enough to put the burden or to take on the the burden of humanity. So think about this. Jesus, who is the creator of all things, who is God of the universe, takes on the burden of humanity. He steps into a broken, sinful, self-centered world that is filled with everything that is opposite of who He is. Puts Himself in the mix of all of that and rub shoulders with sinful people even though he's perfect and makes himself susceptible to the very poison and disease that is destroying the people around him puts himself in human flesh now obviously we know that jesus did never poison himself through sin but he certainly experienced the weight of the poison of sin in our life because he became a sin offering for us on the cross he took that on himself. He took the poison of our sin that was killing our soul and separating us from God forever, and he took it on himself. But he puts himself in the middle of that cesspool of humanity. Let's just be honest. That's what the world sometimes feels like and makes himself susceptible to that. Remember back a couple of years ago, 2014, the outbreak of Ebola in Sierra Leone and in Africa— and the big news report, and, and you know, people are, are getting sick, and then people are getting on planes, and it's making it to the United States, and, every, and all the other places, and, and so how do we treat it? And if you saw pictures, you see, like, the medical workers are, like, in these, these suits, you know, these, like, hazmat suits to try to treat people, even to deal with the dead bodies of people who have died from the disease because it's so contagious. And then in the middle of that, I don't know if you heard the story, there's a doctor who's one of the, the premier kind of experts in the field in Sierra Leone, and, and he was committed, his name is Shikumar Khan, and he was committed to caring for people who had Ebola and trying to find a cure and trying to treat them. And so he would take precautions, but he knew every time he went to treat a patient, he knew he was putting himself at risk, every time. And the more times he did that, the, more, the higher the risk was that he was going to get Ebola and he was going to die. And eventually, after treating all these paci- patients, guess what happened? The same disease that took them is the same disease that took him. But he never stopped. He never stopped pursuing. He never stopped going after them to try to save lives. See, the same disease that's killing us is the disease that Jesus took on himself. Not because of his own doing, but because of our doing. And said, I will allow myself to take on that poison and absorb that in me so that you can be That's how much God loves us. That's what it means for God to be human, that he takes on the burden of humanity and what that looks like. And then there's a fourth thing that we'll conclude with this. Jesus loves us enough to be like us in order to be with us. Again, he doesn't need us. He wants us. But he allowed himself to become human so that he could be on an, A level playing field with us he could see eye to eye he could be with his creation so he closed himself with humanity becomes one of us and again that's important why because if you and i are to live out the reality of what religion kind of proposes or what our own kind of self-righteous self-justifying personalities will put into play which is i've got to be good enough for god i've got to earn something i've got to reach a certain level even though we say, oh, it's grace. By faith, I believe that God is good. I trust in Jesus' sacrifice, and it's God's grace and mercy in my life. In deep down inside, we're thinking, but I still have to be good enough. I still have to do something in order for God to like me, to get in the door, to be in relationship with Him, which is a lie. Because we can't. No matter how hard we try, we can't, we can't reach up to God. Only God can reach down to us, and that's Jesus coming in human flesh. So I've probably shared this before, but when Courtney and Jordan reached an age where they could start making their own food, their own meals, I remember that was a very wonderful day for me because Kim and I didn't have to get up early and make their breakfast and their lunch and everything and send off to school. We, we actually started to empower them and entrust them to actually take care of themselves. And so I remember we, we kind of walked them through, okay, here's all the breakfast stuff. This is what you can make for breakfast. This is where they're at. So when you get up in the morning, you make sure you're getting up enough time to make yourself breakfast eat and be ready to go to school. And they like, okay, got it. So I'm thinking, I get an extra like 20 minutes of sleep every morning. It was like a glorious day. Any parents remember that day? And so I, as the first week unfolded, I would, every once in a while, I would kind of peek, and I noticed, particularly Jordan, the things he was ending up eating weren't the things that we had kind of said, hey, here's breakfast, you know. And it wasn't because he was eating cookies or candy for because it, it just was a very limited kind of menu. And I was like, well, that's not what we told him. And so and so I remember watching it, and, and It took about a week till I I peeked down one time into the kitchen while Courtney and Jordan were in there and it hit me what was going on. The majority of things that we had given, particularly Jordan, because he was at that, he's no longer this way. He was shorter than Courtney. He's way taller than anybody in our family now. But but he, the things that we gave him were on the top shelf in our pantry. And so Jordan would go in and he probably would look up at that and go, that would be great if I could reach it. So he wouldn't, he, it, it literally, every day, if he wanted to eat breakfast for where he told, we told him he could eat it, he'd have to go get a ladder. And he'd have to climb up the ladder every day. So he started grabbing things that were closer, down, lower. And so it broke my heart. I thought, I am a horrible parent. Here, feed yourself, but I can't, I'm not going to give you the food. You've got to climb the ladder to get it. So what did we do? Well, that day, I went and we took everything off the top shelf that was breakfast, and we put it on the lower shelf so that both Courtney and Jordan could reach breakfast. And the same thing is true. Listen, God knows humanity and knows there's no way you and I are getting to the top shelf. There's no way. Even those of us who think we're more spiritual or more right or more moral or more pure, we're never getting to the top shelf because the top shelf is where God lives. So God instead comes down to the bottom shelf and lives where we live. See, that's the beauty of Jesus coming. That's the beauty of being fully God and fully man. That's the beauty of God's love for us, that he would be willing to do that for us to come down to where we're at. So I want to close with this one last story. In fact, worship team, you can come and join me. We're going to sing one last song together. But as I was thinking about this day and I was thinking about my experience and feeling this incredible weight for our city and for our church and the profound, just the weight of God's love, how much He actually loves us. One of the things that I know is true of me and I would probably Guess to say it was probably true of most of us and definitely true of people within our city, is that whether we know Jesus or not, maybe we have a concept of God's love in our life. And there's moments we'll, where we'll revisit that. But what happens over time is that we have a tendency to fall asleep on God's love, which means we have a tendency just to forget completely how profoundly He loves us, how much He's gone through, how He continues to pursue us. And we forget about that. And we just go along our day we go along our suffering and our struggles and our jobs and whatever it is and we just kind of go along and we completely forget and that's why God's saying, "Do they know? Do they know how much I love them?" This whole concept was captured in a, is a short film that came on a number of years ago that's called Most. It was actually filmed in Europe and it was in a different language with subtitles, but it, it tells a story, a very famous story that's been told over and over again that demonstrates the love of the Father and Jesus sacrifice on our behalf. And you may have heard this before, but but there's a picture... I'm not going to play it for you, but the, the movie is pretty vivid. But the picture that, that captures this one scene in the movie, so to kind of give you the context, so it's a story of this father and the son who have a deep, deep relationship. And the dad, for a living, is a, he's a, basically a drawbridge operator. So he operates a train bridge that goes over a, a river. And every time a train comes, he lowers the bridge, the train can cross, and when it's not, he lo- raises it so that the ships can go through the water, in the water. And so one day he takes his son... To work with him. He shows him how everything works. He shows him the, the bridge and shows what dad does. And so they're enjoying this time together. And so he's busy doing his job, and his son kind of wanders off. And all of a sudden, he hears a train coming in the distance. By the way, no joke, when I was telling the story first service, a train went by and honked its horn. And I'm not making that up, okay? And I did not orchestrate that. So we'll be waiting for a train sooner or later. I don't know if I timed this right. anyway so so he hears this it's not on the schedule he's not prepared for it and so he starts to prepare to do his job and he looks around to find his son and he can't find him and then he realizes he looks down into the machinery of where the bridge actually goes down his son is down in there out of curiosity finds himself and he's stuck and he can't get out and so he realizes there's not enough time for me to leave my post get down into the gears of the bridge and free my son i have to make a decision it's either the 400 people on this train die by going into this river or my son dies if I save them. So he has this momentary decision he's got to make and if you see the film, he lowers the bridge and he knows what that means. He knows when he lowers the bridge it's going to kill his son. And So he lowers the bridge and the train comes roaring across it, and there's this, this picture, this scene in the movie. He's literally standing on the side of the train as he knows underneath that track is his son's crushed body. And he's watching the train go by and he's seeing the faces of people in the window. Some of them are reading a book. Others are looking out at the scenery. Some of them see him in tears. Others are laughing and talking with each other. Some of them are on their way home. Some are on their way to work. They're just going along and you can see in his eyes, you're thinking this is just another day to you. You don't even know what's happening. I just gave my son for you because of my love for you. And all you can see is this is just another day. This is just another train ride to work, another train ride home. They're just going about their day. And I, can't, I, I can still see the actor did such a great job of what the heart of the Father felt when that happened. Now listen, I tell that story not to feel guilt and shame like, oh man, I need to be better because God sacrificed Jesus so I could be saved. No, listen, I need to feel better about the way God feels about me, about us willing to do that. But the challenge is, are you riding that train? And every day of your life is just another day. It's just another trip to work. It's just another night of preparing dinner. It's just another day of of, of doing work around the house. Another day of paying bills. Another doing of all the things that we do as human beings. And in the middle of that, we forget how much God loves us. And all that He's gone through to not only save our souls, but to get our attention to say, hey, what I've done for you. And why have I done that? Because I want you to be in relationship with the Father. I want you to understand what it means to be alive. I want you to understand what it means to be free from sin, to have the security of knowing that you're going to be with me in the eternity forever in a deep and profound relationship. I want you to understand all of that. And I did this for you. I did this all for you. So the question for us, the question, question for our city is do we really know Christmas is not just about trees and Christmas carols and presents of the universe is making the ultimate declaration of His profound love for all human history for all time. Do we know that today? So when we leave this place, do we carry that with us? That reality? Would you bow your heads? We're going to close. I'm going to close in prayer and then the team's going to lead us in one last song. But as we close our eyes, I'm going to ask that, that, that if you are in this place today and you know that that whatever way it is happening to you, that you're feeling a nudge in you right now. You may have been in church for a long time. You may be visiting for the first time, but you know that for the first time you are starting to feel a weight that you've never felt before. You're starting to feel not not a heavy burden that you somehow can't carry, but you're starting to feel a weight of something that maybe you didn't really believe before, and that is that God actually does love you. And now you're starting to see for the first time today all of what He's gone through to show His love for you so that you could experience life. And if if that's you right now and, and you would be honest with yourself and, and, and know, yeah, I'm feeling that. And maybe you've never come to a place in your life where you have, in a sense, given into that weight, given into that love, which means acknowledging the fact that the way that you've lived your life, there's gotta be something better. There's gotta be something When God's love comes through Jesus, He's making a declaration to you that I love you so much that you don't have to live as your own God. You don't have to live in the futility of your brokenness and your addictions in life. You don't have to live in the shame and the guilt that you constantly feel for the places where you've come up short in your life. He comes along and says, I can take all of that, that poison that thing that's poisoned your soul, and I will take it on myself, and we'll talk about that, in his death, a payment for the brokenness and sin of our lives, so that in a moment, he can take all of that, he can forgive that, he can wash it away, and what emerges is a life where no longer do you have to be God, but you let God be God you let Jesus be the Lord of your life. If that's what you are desiring today, you're, you are turning the page from what used to be to what should be, what God has for you in following Jesus because of his death and his resurrection. And that's your choice today. I pray that right now you will, you will just begin to talk to God. Just begin to pray. Just begin to tell him, I feel your love. I know you've been pursuing me, and I'm going to give up and stop running, and I'm going to give in to the love that you have for me. Just tell him that right now. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to pray, but at the end of this service, if that's you, I would love for you to come and just mention that you are feeling that way so I can pray with you and agree that you're making a decision to to give in to God's love and turn your life over to Him so that you can experience the fullness of life. Lord Jesus, would you let us feel the warmth, the compassion, the weight, the lengths, the passion, and the pursuit that you have of your love for us today? as we sing this last song, would you allow that just to wash over us? And Lord, I don't know what it is for each person, but I know you know me. I'm not an emotional person in terms of tears, but you made me cry. And for some of us, maybe we need to feel like we've never felt before today, Lord. Something that taps deep into our soul about how profound your love is for each and every one of us. So Lord, would you do that in these next few moments just before we conclude in Jesus' name?